Well, turn with me to Matthew chapter 21. Continue our studies. Jesus Christ, as you know, was never very popular with the religious establishment in Jerusalem. And that's one reason he spent most of his time in ministering in Galilee and places far removed from Jerusalem. But now the time had come. The hour had arrived according to the predetermined plan of God for him to go to that city and to die. So Jesus went, we find him in this passage, in, in Jerusalem in a head-on confrontation with the uh, religious leaders of the city that, was, that would cost him his life. So we see in verse 23, they challenged him, by what authority are you doing these things and who gave you this authority? Jesus responded to this challenge, but with a series of three parables. And in these parables, he turns a table on them. And he says, it's not my authority that's really in question, it's yours. And he accuses them of being rebellious, disobedient, and self-seeking. And says that God is going to take away their authority and give it to another. The first parable we saw two weeks ago. Verses 28 to 32, the parable of the two sons. He says that the, the Pharisees are uh, profess obedience to God and yet are disobedient. On the other hand, he says that the, that the uh, prostitutes and tax collectors, though disobedient at first, have repented and have become obedient to God and they will get into the kingdom of heaven before the religious leaders. And now we find the second parable in verse, starting in verse 33. Listen to another parable. There is a landowner who planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey. And when the harvest time approached, he sent his slaves to the vine growers to receive his produce. And the vine growers took his slaves and beat one and killed another and stoned a third. Again, he sent another group of slaves larger than the first and they did the same thing to them. But afterward, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the vine growers saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. And they took him and cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine growers? They said to him, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end and will rent out the vineyard to other vine growers who will pay him the proceeds the proper seasons. Jesus asks a question and calls for them to make a decision, to make a, a judgment upon the people of the parable before he tells them explicitly his intent because he wants them to think about it, internalize it, and, and pass judgment upon themselves. And yet these vine... these. Uh, not the vine growers, the religious leaders should have known what was going on in the parable. Because Jesus is using a figure that should have been well known to him, that of the vineyard. You'll notice in most of our versions, in verse 33, about half of the words are capitalized, all capitalized, which means that uh, they are allusions to Old Testament passages. Jesus is alluding here to a passage and well known to them from Isaiah chapter 5 in which Isaiah says that God planted the nation of Israel as a vineyard, cultivated it, cared for it, did everything for it, 
expecting to find from that nation the fruits of righteousness and justice and truth. And yet he has obtained from it the worthless fruits of injustice and wickedness and unrighteousness. And therefore Isaiah warns that the judgment of God will fall upon that nation. Well, here Jesus takes the same figure and extends it and uses it in a different way. And Isaiah had uh, condemned the whole nation because of their wickedness before God. Jesus uses the same figure to condemn the religious leaders, the people in whose hands God had entrusted the vineyard, his nation. He had given it to them, and yet they had not produced the fruit for him that was his due. We see that the vine grower in the parable sent his slaves to, to get his rent, his share of the crops. Yet they beat them and killed them and would give him nothing. Jesus is saying, reminding them that God had sent the prophets of the Old Testament to the nation to rebuke them and to call forth from them repentance and deeds of righteousness. And yet, by and large, the prophets got nowhere. So God in his patience sent more and more with the same result. Jesus says that God, like the vine grower, is now sending his son. Surely they will respect the son. And yet he predicts that they are going to beat and kill him. And he says that their real intent is to seize the vineyard for themselves. He's accusing them of being self-centered, of having no respect for God, not giving him what is his due, but instead wanting to abuse their privilege and use the nation simply for their own glory and power and prosperity. When well, verses 42 to 46, Jesus makes explicit what he uh, was teaching implicitly through the parable. Jesus said to them, Did you never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected? This became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord and is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and will be given to a nation producing the fruit of it. And he who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. But on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. And when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they understood that he was speaking about them. And when they sought to seize him, they became afraid of the multitudes because they held him to be a prophet. Jesus hits them between the eyes by sailing their understanding of the scriptures. They were to be the religious leaders. They were supposed to be the religious leaders of the nation. Those who were best educated in the scriptures. And yet he says to them, haven't you ever read your Bible? Didn't you ever read that verse in Psalm 118? It says that the stone which the builders rejected has become the, the chief cornerstone. And in quoting this, he is making a claim to his own messiahship and also accusing them of being like the people in this parable, of rejecting God's Son when he came. Now it appears that Psalm 118 verse 22 was not directly messianic in its original context, but it's proverbial of that which is valued being uh, devalued by those who should have valued it, but then by a turn of events coming to be valued later on. Yet this imagery of the cornerstone is used in Scripture elsewhere directly of the Messiah. 
In Isaiah chapter 28, verse 16, Isaiah says this, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a costly cornerstone for the foundation, firmly placed. He who believes in it will not be disturbed. Jesus is claiming to be this cornerstone provided for by God. And he's accusing the the religious leaders of uh, the ones who are supposed to be fashioning the nation into a godly structure of overlooking the cornerstone, of building the building without this important part of its structure. And if continued to, uh, if allowed to continue building the building, the whole thing eventually would crumble and topple. And therefore, by implication, God is taking away their leadership, their responsibility. And by God's hand, he is instituting Jesus Christ and will institute him as the cornerstone of the structure in spite of what these religious leaders have done. Notice he makes explicit this in verse 43. The kingdom of God will be taken away from you and will be given to a nation, producing the fruit of it. Because you have been rebellious, he's saying, you have not brought forth the fruit that, that God deserved. Therefore, God is going to give it to the Gentiles. And that's his implication. Those who are responding to the Messiah, who will respond to the Messiah and produce the appropriate fruits. Then in verse 44, he strengthens his messianic claim by a warning. He warns them not to disregard him. He who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls will scatter him like dust. This warning is a strengthening of his messianic claims because it draws again from the Old Testament imagery. The first half of the verse is reminiscent of Isaiah chapter 8, verses 14 and 15, in which God likens himself to a stumbling stone over which Israel and Judah stumble because they don't entrust themselves to him. Instead, they look to uh, Assyria for their help. Jesus is saying that that those who disregard him are like a man who walks down a path, not looking where he's going, trips over a large stone in his way and falls down and smashes his head open. is broken to pieces. But, he says, there are others whose judgment, upon whom the judgment will fall even more severely. There are those upon whom judgment will fall like a huge stone falling on a man, crushing him and pulverizing him into dust and spreading that dust out to the, to the winds to be scattered. Here he's speaking directly of the religious leaders who are not merely indifferent to him, but downright antagonistic. And here he's drawing upon the imagery of Daniel chapter 2. In that chapter, Daniel records a vision that King Nebuchadnezzar had of a large statue made of four different kinds of metal, representing four successive world kingdoms. And upon that statue, a stone uh, carved without hands falls, crushes it, into dust, and the dust is scattered by the wind, and that stone grows until it covers the whole world. That stone is the Messiah and his kingdom. And Jesus is claiming, I am that stone. And he who trips upon me is going to be be broken to pieces, and he who opposes me is going to be crushed when I come in power and majesty. Now the Pharisees and the chief priests finally understood what Jesus was talking about. As verse 45 tells us, they understood and they responded to his message, 
not as he had hoped, but as he knew they would. They plotted to seize him. They tried to seize him, but the crowds loved him, took him to be a prophet, and they were afraid of the crowd, so they uh, drew back. As we will see next week, they counseled together in verse 15 how to trap him. They, they tried a different tactic. They thought if they could ask trick questions, maybe they could discredit him um, uh, among the masses. When that failed, they, in cowardice, decided to uh, capture him in the dark of night and then try him during the nighttime when the masses would be asleep and then hang him on a cross to die. Well, the application of this section is very clear, in the general at least, namely that we should not be like these Pharisees who are rebellious against God. I'd like to make three sub-points under this general application. The first is that we need to, to make sure we're not like the Pharisees who misjudged their sin. They considered themselves to be very dedicated to God. They led lives of ritual purity strictly adhering to what they considered to be the proper interpretation of the law. They were very religious and very committed. They were proud of the fact that they were strict monotheists in a a world filled with pagan polytheistic idolatry. And yet notice in this parable, Jesus links him up with the kings of the Old Testament who killed the prophets of God. Kings like Ahaz and Manasseh, who were idolaters, child sacrificers, who were violent shedders of blood and abusers of the poor. What he's saying is that though you're religious, though you might look good on the outside, you're just as bad as these kings, these priests of the Old Testament who killed the prophets. Now we can misjudge ourselves as the Pharisees did themselves if we're not careful. We can have lives that are clean in certain ways. We can be self-righteous and look down upon all those pagans out there who do all the things that we don't do and yet be just as bad as them. Whenever we tolerate uh, irritability within ourselves or let resentment be harbored in our lives, whether whenever we take lightly failure to love God with all of our heart and soul and strength and might and to love our neighbors as ourselves, then we are, uh, are falling into Pharisaism. We're told in 1 Samuel 15.23 that, uh, that rebellion is as bad as witchcraft to God. So whenever we rebel against Him, we're just as bad in His eyes, that's just as bad in His eyes as Satan worship. And he says the sin of insubordination is just as bad as idolatry. Jesus is warning us implicitly here not to be like the Pharisees. They misjudged their own lives because they misjudged sin. They wrongly felt that they were righteous and in the right and didn't need to be corrected by this Jesus person who is coming and and, uh, rebuking them. Second point I'd like to make is that we need to be not be like the Pharisees in that they were very religious but were basically self-centered and self-seeking. They were very dedicated religiously. Uh, their lives were completely caught up in religious activity. And yet they were in it for their own glory. Jesus says they were like these wicked tenant farmers 
who wanted to seize the, the vineyard for themselves and give nothing to its owner. In other words, he's saying that they, though they were religious, did not really care for God. They wanted all this religion just for themselves. Salve their conscience to build up their egos. And we can be like them too. We can be out for the status and the recognition, always worrying whether or not our ideas are being uh, adhered to in church policies and procedures. We can be very offended and feel slighted if people don't pay attention to us. We can be through our ministry seeking recognition of other people. I had a friend who told me one time that he visited a church and introduced himself to the uh, minister. said, Reverend Jones, my name is Bill Walker. And the Reverend Mr. Jones uh, kind of stood up straight and corrected him. It's uh, Dr. Jones. And you could, uh, my friend said he could tell very easily whose glory he was interested in. We can be like that. Not so much interested in serving other people, but just interested in ourselves. Or we can be uh, all concerned that everything is done our way and feel slighted and hurt when, when everybody doesn't agree with us. I heard recently of a woman who, is, who tried to tear her church apart and oust the pastor because a wicket fence was put up around the parsonage without, her, without them consulting her. She'd been in the church for years and been a pillar of the church. And how dare they do that without asking her opinion? Jesus warns us to beware of Pharisaism in any form. Being like them who, though they're religious, were basically just self-seeking. Not trying to serve God and man, but self. Third point I'd like to make is we need to be warned. We cannot ignore Jesus Christ nor can we oppose him and get away with it. He says again in verse 44, He who falls on this stone, in other words himself, will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. He is the Lord of the universe, though he uh, simply offers us himself right now and doesn't force himself upon us. There will come a day of judgment in which how we respond to him will be very important. We cannot escape his demands upon us. The second parable we find is in chapter 22, verses 1 to 14. Verse 1 says, Jesus answered and spoke to them again in parables. In other words, this parable that follows is an answer to their action. They tried to get together and seize him and lynch him right there in answer to their uh, evil response to, to these other parables, he spoke yet another parable to them. Let's read through that together. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And he sent out his slaves to call those who had, come, who had been invited to the wedding feast, and they were unwilling to come. Again, he sent out other slaves, saying, Tell those who have been invited, Behold, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fattened livestock are all butchered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went their way, one to his own farm, another to his business. And the rest seized his slaves and mistreated them and killed them. But the king was enraged and sent his armies and destroyed those murderers and set their city on fire. Then he said to his slaves, The wedding is ready. 
but those who were invited are not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main highways, and as many as you find there, invite to the wedding feast. And those slaves went out into the streets and gathered together all they found, both evil and good. The wedding hall was filled with dinner guests. But when the king came in to look over the, the dinner guests, he saw there a man not dressed in wedding clothes. And he said to him, Friend, how did you come in here without wedding clothes? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the servants, Bind him hand and foot, and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. Now verse 2 provides the setting for this parable. King having a wedding feast for his son. Then the parable falls into two parts. Verses 3 to 10 describe the those who had been invited rejecting the invitation and then others being invited to take their place. Verses 11 to 14 describe a man who is excluded from this wedding feast because he was improperly dressed. And we'll uh, look at what kind of clothes we need to wear to church when we get to that point. Uh, the, the setting is in verse 2, as we said, and I think it's very significant that God likens the kingdom of heaven, that Christ likens the kingdom of heaven to a wedding feast. In other words, God invites mankind to a celebration. Now, many people picture the Christian life as one of dullness and boredom and monotony. And yet he says here it's not so. Now the kingdom of heaven has two different forms. Uh, we're told elsewhere in the Gospels that the kingdom of heaven is experienced by us right now as we experience Jesus Christ as Lord of our lives. We're told it will also come in another form in the future. When Christ comes again, he will establish his kingdom upon the earth during the millennium and then uh, God will reign throughout all eternity during the what we call the eternal state. And that, in the future, is also the kingdom of heaven. Both, he says, uh, are like a, the kingdom of heaven is like a wedding feast. Now, many look upon the Christian life right now as being dull and drab and limited by endless rules and regulations. And they look upon heaven as being like an endless, dull church service filled with lifeless, perfunctory singing of of boring hymns sung to funeral music and unending sermons uh, in given in monotonous tones on boring subjects, kind of like you get here, uh, at least this morning. And uh, the only breaks you get are the times you get to float up in the clouds and play these dumb songs in your harps. And yet God says it's not so. The kingdom of heaven is a a wedding feast. It's a celebration. I remember when I was a teenager, I thought at one point that, well, I'll wait until I become an old man to become a Christian. Because, after all, I want to live life with, you know, for all it's got right now and not miss out on anything. But what a foolish perspective I had. Because the where it's at right now is, is in knowing God and serving Him. God offers us not a life of dullness but a life of excitement and adventure and fulfillment. Now, I know that, that we, there's much suffering that we have to do in this life. There are many trials that all of us experience that are unavoidable. And yet, God wants us now to experience life 
in this way, his wedding feast type of life. This is encouraging to me because many times, and probably most times, I fall short of experiencing in this plane. But God beckons all of us to pursue him and that relationship with him so that he can flood our lives with excitement and adventure and joy and love and peace and contentment. Make it like a, a, a big, fulfilling, exciting party. That's what life should be like now and in eternity. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm, ex- I'm looking forward to the day I die. That's going to be exciting. But I'm also looking forward to right now because I know that at least in part I can experience this wedding feast type of life right now. Well, this is what the people were invited to, Jesus says, not a life of dull, drab, religious routine, but a wedding feast. However, the invited guests, the people of the nation of Israel, did not want to come. They'd been invited way back, beginning with the patriarchs, the covenants God made with them, and through the prophets of the Old Testament. And then when the uh, messengers go out to say, here's the time, come to the feast, they refuse. Now those who refuse fall into two groups. Those in verse 5 paid no attention, went their way, one to his own farm, another to his business. These people were merely disinterested. They just didn't take the time. They were caught up in the routines of life. Can you imagine being a peasant farmer and never doing anything very exciting all of your life and one day you're invited to go to the palace of the king and turning down that invitation? That's what these people did. They remind me of a friend I had in college who... Uh, said that he was very spiritually interested. As a matter of fact, he said he wanted to, to be a uh, youth worker in a church after, uh, after college. And yet, he, uh, whenever I invited him to come to a Bible study or to attend a special meeting where he could hear a speaker who would help him in his spiritual quest, he always turned it down. He always said, well, I'd really like to, but I just don't have the time right now. Yet I noticed that he did have the time for the very important aspects of life, such as lingering over the sports page and religiously watching a soap opera on TV every day, which is an important part of your college education. Uh, Jesus here is is uh, condemning, really, all those who do such things, who let the unimportant parts of life squeeze out the essential, namely our relationship with Him. And then he says there's a second group uh, in verse 6, The rest seized his slaves and mistreated them and killed them. Now, you'd have to be awfully perverted to not only turn down an invitation to a party, but beat up and kill the the delivery boy who brings the the invitation in the mail. You'd have to have a bitter, intense, perverse uh, hatred towards the king who had invited you. And Jesus is saying, you Pharisees and Sadducees are like this. You think you're great stuff. You think you're religious. But you uh, have this kind of perverse hatred towards God himself who is behind all of this. So the king becomes enraged and he sends his armies to destroy these people in their city. And here in verse 7, Jesus is, is predicting in shadow form what would happen in A.D. 70 when God would bring his army, the Romans, and we know from Scripture that Even pagan armies who know nothing about God are still under his control. They came to the city and destroyed it, surrounded Jerusalem and burned it down because of their rejection of of their Messiah. And then the invitation to the kingdom was spread throughout the world. 
Because God said that the wedding feast of my son will not go, will not be empty. So the gospel is then extended to the Gentiles. And notice he says to evil and good in verse 10. In other words, it was not those who merely looked like they deserved an invitation, those who were ritually pure and kept the laws of Pharisees, but anybody was given an invitation by God. However, we see in verses 11 to 13, there was one man who came who got kicked out. Apparently, the king had either told the people to dress in wedding garments before they came or else gave them wedding garments as they came in the door. But here is one man who is found to be without these appropriate wedding clothes. The king went and confronted him and said, Friend, how did you come in here without wedding clothes? The man was speechless. Apparently it was more than simply a social faux pas. He had not merely uh, run out of time and, and uh, come in his work clothes, but he knew that something was wrong. And the treatment of the man indicates such. The king said, bind him hand and foot and cast him, throw him outside the palace into the darkness of night. Now Jesus' explanation for this is found in the, the uh, enigmatic words in verse 14. For many were call, are called, but few are chosen. Actually, this, these words form the closing of the point of the whole parable. He's not saying here that If you want to get into the kingdom, you still can't anyway unless there's some special work of God to choose you. His point is that a mere invitation is not enough. The people of Israel had been invited. They were even the chosen people of God. Yet yet because of their hard-heartedness and refusal to accept the invitation, they were rejected. And then in verses 11 to 13, we see another man who came and yet was kicked out because of his improper dress. Now, the question is, what was the wedding garment? What does it represent? And why the big deal about not having it on? We get our best clue. I'd like to take you to two passages to get our clues. One is in Revelation chapter 19, verses 7 to 9, where we read about this wedding feast of the Lamb, which is going to come in the future. Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to God for the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. And it was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. And He said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And He said to me, These are the true words of God. So the the marriage supper is a time that God has prepared for the, uh, the wedding feast, of the, the, the joining together of Jesus Christ, the groom, and the church, who is his bride. And there the church is pictured, dressed in fine wedding garments, uh, wedding gown, which is symbolic of the righteous acts of the saints. And if there is a parallel, and I think there is, then the garment that this man should have had on would have been his own righteous acts. Now, it's not that we are saved by our own righteous acts. We're saved by grace through the work of Jesus Christ for us on the cross. And yet no man is saved without good works. Not that our good works save us, but they show the seriousness of our commitment to God. Notice again back in Matthew, in Gospel of Matthew in chapter 3, passage we looked at many months ago. 
Matthew chapter 3, verses 7 and 8. I'll read the words of John the Baptist. But when John the Baptist saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bring forth fruit in keeping with your repentance. In other words, he's saying it's not, it's not enough simply to, to come to church, to uh, be religious and to have a sweet smile on your face and sing a few hymns. God asks for repentance. This is John's message. It's Je- it was Jesus' message. We read in the book of Acts and in a couple of places it was Paul's message of repentance towards God and of faith in Christ. What Jesus is teaching in this parable back in Matthew 22 is that it's not enough just to come to the wedding feast. We need to come in a certain way, with a certain heart. The kind of response that God is asking for from us is a repentance. And repentance is a turning from sin and a turning to God and to righteousness. Without that, we're going to be kicked out of the wedding feast if we try to come. I remember asking a friend once, do you believe in Jesus Christ? He said, sure, I believe in Christ. I don't know if he existed or not, but you might as well believe in him and cover all your bases just in case. Well, that's not the kind of belief that God calls us to. That's not the kind of response. And that man was like this man in the parable who comes to the feast, but he gets kicked out. And unless my friend changes before now on the day of judgment, he's going to be very surprised when he's kicked out. Because Jesus says you can't get in without repentance. You can't get in without giving God your life. It's not enough to come forward at a church service or to say a special prayer or to uh, uh, sing a certain song or anything else without repentance, without clothing yourselves in, uh, in those righteous acts and demonstrating your repentance, then you can't get in. It's not that we have to be perfect. None of us can be. But all God asks us to do is to turn from our old life, to embrace Him, and to commit ourselves to... to uh, uh, godly living, and let him work that out in us. Well, Jesus tells us through this passage then, these, these two parables, not to be like the Pharisees. Don't be like them when they uh, abuse their responsibilities and turned their leadership in the kingdom of God simply to a self-service. Don't be like them in despising the blessedness of a, of a tremendous Uh, opportunity that God lays before us, an invitation to a wedding feast type of life. We can despise it either in a total way and not come to know him, or even we who are Christians can despise it in a day-to-day way and think, well, that's fine for other people, but I want to be in the in crowd, or I want to live where life is, or I want to do my own pleasures. He says, "Don't, don't miss out. God is the one who can fulfill life. He's the one who can make it whole, not, not money or, or love or sex or pleasures uh, of this world or materialistic things, but only God. And that's what he, what he beckons us all to. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we pray that you will save us from being like the Pharisees, from being self-willed and rebellious, taking light to sin within our own life, using religion just to seek our own ways and our own glory. We ask that you would uh, 
Make within us responsive hearts. Lord, we want to embrace you and live this marriage feast type of life today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.